as the conscience of this community has stated clearly and unequivocally that his hate, his viciousness, his depravity will not go unanswered. Will not go unanswered. See, we have this moral impulse that says when something like that happens, it has to be answered. We can't just sweep it under the rug. We can't just pretend it didn't happen. We can't, it's not enough to say to the perpetrator, we forgive you and then you can just go on and there's no consequences like nothing happened. No, something has to be done. It has to be answered. And this moral impulse comes from God, who is the most just and moral being in the universe. And God himself has an answer. God has a response to hatred and viciousness and sin. And part of God's answer is, astonishingly, the death of his son on the cross. Last week we read about Jesus' baptism by John. And we saw that Jesus' identity was revealed at his baptism. In today's gospel, we see how John the Baptist became convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. He says that God told him that the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse um, 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. And then verse 34, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist became convinced by a revelation of God that Jesus was the Son of God. He calls Jesus the Son of God. But then he calls Jesus something else, something rather strange. I mean, we're used to hearing it, but uh, certainly in the first century, it would be strange to call somebody the Lamb of God. But that's what John the Baptist calls Jesus, the Lamb of God. And it's God's land, God's land that is the answer, God's answer to hatred and viciousness and depravity and sin. So two times in this passage, John says, Behold the Lamb of God. What does that mean exactly, that Jesus is the Lamb of God? My pastor asked one of his parishioners that question. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God? And the parishioner replied, well, it means that Jesus was meek and mild. Not exactly. We have to think biblically. We have to think biblically if we're going to understand the Bible, for sure. And through the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, lambs are associated with sacrifice. Let me just kind of run down a little sketch of this connection between lamb and sacrifice in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. Okay? So just a little overview here. The first mention in the Bible of a lamb as a sacrifice is the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, which is that very difficult story of God calling Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And as they're going up the mountain, this is particularly heart-wrenching scene, as they're going up the mountain, Isaac says to his father, Father, we have the, the wood and we have the fire. Where is the sacrifice? And remember what Abraham said to Isaac, my son, God himself will provide the lamb as an offering. So that's the first time you see that association of lamb and sacrifice, the story 
of Abraham being called to sacrifice his son. Then there's the lamb of the Passover. And God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. And on the night of the Passover, remember Moses told the people of Israel that you are to put the blood of a, a sacrificed lamb on your doorpost and above your door. And that night the Lord struck down the firstborn of Egypt after a series of plagues. But he passed over the house of the people of Israel. They were saved by the sacrificial blood of a lamb. Another reference to lamb as sacrifices is each day in the temple, morning and night, the priest would offer to God an unblemished lamb as a sacrifice. And then there's one final reference, and this is from Isaiah 53, which I know I quote a lot, I refer to a lot in my preaching, Isaiah 53, but I refer to it because it's one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament in terms of understanding Jesus' death. It's a description of the suffering servant of God, and as Christians we believe that it's a, a prophecy of Jesus' death, which is how the apostles understood Isaiah 53. And verse 7 says, and this is familiar to us, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And then Isaiah 53 ends, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So a lamb that freely gives up his life to bear the sin of many. This is a picture of the suffering servant of God. Isaiah 53. So when John the Baptist said, looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, all those images and scriptures and ideas are echoing in the background. Like the story of Abraham and Isaac, Jesus is the Lamb that God provides. But unlike that story at the cross, God did not spare his own son. Jesus is the Passover lamb who delivers us from sin and death and evil. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John, John links Jesus' suffering and death to the Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrifices in the temple. He's the suffering servant of God. He's the lamb that was slain who bore the sin of many. So that is what this phrase, lamb of God, means. It's a way of talking about Jesus' sacrificial ministry for sin. And notice that John says this is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Not sins individually. Not just sins individually. But sin in its entirety. The sin of the whole world. And not just for Israel, in other words, but for all nations. He takes away the sin in its entirety for all people. In our passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 49 was another one of these servant of God passages. And did you notice the kind of universal picture here that Isaiah gives in Isaiah 49? The servant, this is Isaiah 49, 6. The servant of God will be a light for the nations that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is that light. He is God's salvation that reaches to the ends of the earth because he's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So that's, that's the background. That's, the, that's the, the scriptural context for that phrase. You just need to be familiar with that. 
But I'll, I'll be honest, I think a lot of us have a hard time kind of connecting to that imagery. It doesn't resonate so much with us. Lambs that are slain in blood and sacrifice, because many of us, and not, not all of us certainly, but many of us um, come from this middle class, upper middle class, suburban culture, and we don't have a whole lot of experience with killing lambs and killing animals and seeing their blood being shed. Just doesn't resonate with a lot of us. <coughs> I was watching a travel show with one of my daughters last week, and this guy was visiting a place in the Middle East. He met up with a group of people, and they were going to have a meal together. And the main dish of the meal was goat. But before they had the goat, they had to kill the goat. And they showed the whole thing. They showed this poor goat being drug out, and it's bleeding, and and you know it's it's got a rope around its neck and my little uh, this is Naomi is watching it with me you know first grader and her eyes were like here and and, uh, and they showed it the throat being slit and the blood draining and the life of this lamb draining out and she said to me daddy that's mean daddy that's gross and I said honey well we eat meat and this is what happens in order for us to eat meat and she said something like, well, I don't like to see it. And she stormed out of the room. <laughs> so many of us, certainly not all of us, uh, aren't, aren't used to seeing that, seeing animals slaughtered. And some of us don't want to see it or think about it. And it's even more difficult to think of Jesus, the Son of God, dying this slow, glory, shameful death on the cross. It's hard to look at, and I think many of us have had an experience of looking at a depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus and turning away or wanting to turn away and not see it. But we can't overlook it. We can't domesticate it, although we do. I mean, I'm wearing this beautiful, shiny gold cross. It's very clean and shiny, but it's not really representing the real thing that happened to Jesus. Because the awfulness of Jesus' death matches the awfulness of sin. The weightiness of Jesus' death corresponds to the weightiness of the depravity of the human situation. And so while we shouldn't be enamored with the suffering of Christ on the cross, we, we ought to not sweep it under the rug. And I appreciate artists who capture some of the realism of the cross. In fact, something different this morning. I have some examples of some realistic art uh, some realistic depictions of the crucifixion of Christ. And this isn't the most gory, but it is kind of, some of it is hard to see, so I'll just give you a fair warning, but I'm going to ask Chris to show. This is uh, Matthias Grunewald, uh, his crucifixion of Jesus in uh, 16th century, and it was, for its time, a very realistic portrait of the suffering of Jesus. You can see he's emaciated, and then it has John the Baptist pointing to Jesus on the cross. And then there's the lamb at John the Baptist's feet. Behold, the lamb of God. So this is 16th century. Now it gets a little tougher, 19th century. Go ahead to the next one. This is Nicholas Gay, a Russian artist. His crucifixion of Jesus, which was kept from public view. Those in the back row probably have a hard time seeing the detail. But he's depicting the agony of the cross. And in the next one, 20th century, um, this is 
This is an artist, an American artist named Marcus uh, Reichert, I think is how you pronounce his name, Marcus Reichert. And he did a series of depictions of the crucifixion of Jesus. And um, some of these were in the Canterbury Cathedral for, for a time, and I think in Winchester Cathedral. And here's what uh, Marcus Reichert said about his crucifixion scenes. He said, for me, the question will always be, to what extreme is one willing to go to express the agony, physical, psychological, and spiritual? No one knows what Jesus suffered. We do not know, we do know, however, that such a death is the ultimate expression of man's cruelty. The anxiety and despair of being subjected to such forms of torture and annihilation at the hands of one's fellow human being is nearly beyond comprehension. The anxiety and despair of being subjected to such forms of torture and annihilation at the hands of one fellow human being is nearly beyond comprehension. Although it's impossible to truly express such suffering, that was my intention. Well, that's good. Chris, thank you. So, you know, we see depictions like that, and you, you wonder, why did Jesus have to die this way? Why the agony of the cross? Why didn't he just die by the sword? been a lot easier. Or like uh, Socrates. Remember the story of Socrates, how he died? He he drank uh, poisonous hemlock and just kind of died this dignified death after giving the speech. Why did Jesus, the Son of God, have to die this way? Well, again, because the awfulness of his death corresponds to the awfulness of human sin and rebellion against God. And at the cross, God shows us the viciousness of the sin of the world and he judges that sin. He exposes the sin for all its ugliness. He judges that sin. He can't just overlook it. He can't overlook the murder and the genocide and the torture and the terrorism and the lust and the greed and the slander and the gossip and the dishonesty and all the rest. He can't just sweep it under the rug and just saying you're forgiven to the world isn't sufficient. Something has to be done. There has to be an answer. <coughs> and at the cross, he judges the sin, and through the sacrifice of Christ, he takes it away. He removes it as a barrier from being a relationship to him. And that is part of God's answer to the sin of the world. The other, the other part, the, the final answer, will be when the Lamb returns as a judge. So we see at the cross God judging sin in a way that matches its seriousness. But of course we also see the great mercy and love of God. And that was the motivation for the cross. The love of God in Christ Jesus. And it's by experiencing this love and mercy of God that our hearts are changed. By experiencing the love of God that we see at the cross of Christ, we began to want to please Him. And that is part of God's answer to the problem of sinfulness, too, to change hearts so that we begin to want to please him, to change us by the greatness of his love. The psalmist in our psalm wrote this. He said uh, he was giving thanks to God in Psalm 40 for this salvation that he's experienced. He's been delivered from this pit of destruction. He says... Uh, he drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock and made my steps secure. He's praising God for that. And God put a new song in his mouth, a new song of praise. So he 
first of all, praises God for the salvation that he's experienced, the deliverance. And then he says in verse 8, I delight to do your will. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is in my heart. Why do you delight to do the will of God? There are a lot of people who say, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. That will limit my freedom. That will limit my happiness. That will limit my delight. But the psalmist says, no, I delight to do the will of God who loved me that much, who rescued me in that way. It changed his heart and it changed his will. And that's what happens in our life as well. When John the Baptist saw Jesus as he walked by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he points it out to his disciples. Two of John's disciples began to follow Jesus. And Jesus even changes Peter's name, saying, You're going to be transformed by this relationship. That's what that means. You're going to be transformed in this new relationship that you have with me as a disciple. But when they heard that Jesus was the Lamb of God, they began to follow him. And my motivation in preaching the cross of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, my motivation in preaching that Jesus is the Lamb of God is that you and I might follow him. Might follow him. I want you to know and experience the immeasurable love of God in Jesus Christ so that you'll follow him and be changed by him. So I want our young children that are growing up in this parish at the very young age to get an understanding at their level, very basic understanding, like I did at five and six years old, that Jesus did this for me. And it shows how much he loves me and how much God the Father loves me. And so I want to follow this God who loves me so much. I, I want our teenagers who struggle with issues of purpose and identity and acceptance to behold the Lamb of God so that they'll understand that if, if this is if this is how much God accepts me, that I'm going to follow Him. I want us who struggle with guilt and shame to know it is well with my soul because of what Christ has done for me. I want the man or woman who's, uh, if they're uncertain, if God really cares for me in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of difficulty, to behold the Lamb of God and to understand, yes, He cares for me. He cares for me that much. I want the person who's growing complacent in worship and obedience to God, or the one who's keeping God at arm's length, to behold the Lamb that was slain for them, so that their hearts would be warmed by the love of God, that they be drawn to follow Him. That's my motivation in pointing us to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is certainly not the final word, but thank God we have the resurrection of Jesus or it wouldn't really matter. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is triumphant. But the cross was necessary. So join with John the Baptist and behold the Lamb of God. Follow Him. And let's praise him. Let's praise him for his awesome justice and his overwhelming mercy and love. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, I do pray that you'll help us to do that today and this week. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to worship you and to give you praise for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, the sacrificial offering. Thank you for the opportunity just in a moment to, to gather around the table of the Lord. 
and to commune with Christ and to feed upon the reality of this grace. Lord, we pray that we would be so filled with the love of God in Jesus Christ as we contemplate the cross, that we would be drawn to follow you more and more and to share this news with others in the coming days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?